the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're talking about a book that's both a new book and a very, very old one. It's Johannes Leo Africanus's The Cosmography and Geography of Africa, which is five or six hundred years old, but is in its first new translation for 400 years, and I'm joined by those translators who are Richard Oosterhoff and Anthony Osser-Richardson. Richard, sorry, I hope I've spelt your second, pronounced your second name correctly. I think that's right. Thank you very much for having us. Well, many readers, listeners to this podcast may not have heard of the cosmography and geography of Africa, and they probably have the same difficulty in pronouncing cosmography as I do. Can you start by saying, what, what is this book? What's its, what's its significance? Okay, so this is the first book about Africa written in a European language, and it's the first book about Africa published in Europe. There are smaller uh, accounts before it uh, of Christian explorers and soldiers and missionaries who'd been to Africa, but they're very short. This is the first full-scale work about Africa published in a European language for a European audience. And when it was published in 1550, it was almost immediately a huge sensation all over Europe. It was translated into many languages. People knew about it from England to Italy. And for two or three hundred years after publication, it was the main source of information about Africa until, until you know, English, uh, European explorers started visiting uh, Africa in much more uh, quantities in the 19th century. So it was really a kind of book that shaped how English readers, French readers, Italian readers, Spanish readers, readers of Latin all over Europe and elsewhere understood and, and visualised things that were going on all over Africa for a, a very long period of time. But if I could add something just about that word cosmography that you're saying, Sam, in a sense, it's, a, it's an effort to be a little bit systematic. You get two kinds of cosmographical writings, loosely speaking, um, in the Renaissance. Uh, one of them is really all about mapping. So kind of putting things onto a grid, which is relatively new technology in the period. But the other sort of cosmography that you're going to find is more like a narrative description of lots of the places that you'll find in a region. So this is a book that tries to tries to do that for Africa. I mean, we can get into some of the details later, but um, it's a bit lopsided. It depends a lot on what the, the man will call Leo Africanus saw what he knew best, what he loved. Also, you know, just the things that he was fascinated by about Africa to, to put together that kind of picture that Anthony was describing. But it also attempts to be a little bit systematic. It, it describes everything from the Maghrib or the, the Western portion along the north of the continent, uh, the Mediterranean, and then down in, in kind of bands across what was uh, Numidia, Libya, um, which includes the Sahara, and then down into what he terms the Blacklands, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. It's it's a limited picture. The further it's more limited, the further you south you get. Uh, uh, but it attempts, nevertheless, to be somewhat comprehensive. Because, of course, as you say, you know, it depends a bit on his his travels. And we'll, so, before we come back to talk a bit more in detail about the structure of the book and the, its attitudes and its its you know extraordinary details, um, as you say, we need to get a sense of who this this author was. What do we know of the man who was known for much of the Renaissance as Leo Africanus? Who was he? Well, what we know is unfortunately very limited and can be fit on a page or in a paragraph, which is uh, frustrating after... Or a short podcast is helpful. <laughs> or a short podcast. Yeah, so what we know is that he was born in Granada in Spain, probably in the late 1480s, though we don't know for certain. Uh, his family left with him in the 1490s, probably after the recapture of Granada in 1492, and went to Fez... Yeah, in what is now Morocco. So we should say he's a Muslim. He's not a, he's not a Westerner. 
he is a Muslim. He's a Muslim, probably an Arab, though there is some theory that he's a Berber or extraction, probably an Arab Muslim. Grows up for most of his life in Fez with his family. We know his father and his uncle are there. And he goes to university in Fez, well, a madrasa, I should say, uh, studies law and theology, and then becomes a diplomat in the service of the Sultan of Fez, Muhammad al-Burtakali. Uh, and he works in various diplomatic missions for Muhammad for some time, for a couple of decades. Uh, travels around Africa, that's how we have the information about Africa from him, his diplomatic missions all over North Africa and down to what is now Mali and Jenin and, and Nigeria. And then in 1518, he is returning from a mission to Constantinople and his boat gets captured by pirates, Christian pirates. And the Christian pirates bring him to the Pope in Rome. And the Pope is very interested in this uh, learned man who's been taken captive with all these other people on the boat uh, and he stays in Rome for a couple of years until he's in, in, a, in, in captivity I should say in, um, in the Castel Sant'Angelo in Rome and then he is um, baptized we know he's baptized we have the baptismal record in 1520 uh, his name growing up uh, as we uh, learned from a, a, a signature on a book he, he, he wrote or, or, or read I should say uh, was Al-Hassan ibn Muhammad Al-Wazan. But when he was baptised, he was given the Pope's name. The Pope was Leo X, uh, and his, his Christian name was Giovanni. So uh, Al-Hassan became uh, Giovanni, or Johannes, uh, Leo, and then Africanus of Africa. So that's what we know of his life up to 1520. And, and unfortunately, beyond that, we know even less... The things we know about his life we know mainly from his book. Uh, we know that in 1526 he completed this book, uh, The Cosmography of Africa, which we all are talking about. Um, and then after that he vanishes. We have no idea what happens after that. There is a possible record of him in Rome in 1527. There is a much later claim that he went back to Africa and lived in Tunis, but we have very little corroboration of that. He certainly likes really... Tunis from the book, doesn't he? <laughs> he likes Tunis, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the fly in the ointment, though, is that he's a baptised Christian. And if you're a Muslim uh, in the Renaissance and you become a Christian, then you're an apostate. And the punishment for apostasy is, of course, death. So, you know, there's, there's a serious <laughs> problem. Tunis less attractive in those circumstances. Less, less attractive. <laughs> so we just don't know, actually. We have very little concrete information about what happens to him and his comings and goings, even in Italy. So he's a really shadowy figure, unfortunately, but that, those shadows have allowed people to speculate and um, you know, uh, imagine what, what he might have got up to. Of course, but the, the sense, I mean, which I, th I think is really interesting in, in light of what this book is, that you know, here's someone who's Muslim by birth, Christian by adoption, who's writing, he's not, you know, he's not a sort of Italian writing about... Africa. He's writing in a second language, isn't he? That's right, yeah. And, I mean, how much, in terms of the sort of framing of the book and the way of, you know, is the sort of form of knowledge and the form of thinking that he's producing a sort of distinctively mm. Islamic one? I mean, is that his cast mm. in mind? Or is he sort of, you know, writing to his target audience? How, you know, where, does, where is he situated? I mean, you, you suggest in your introduction there might be some doubt even how sincere his conversion was I and mean, it'd take a year and a half in prison before he had found christ yes i think this is one of the things that have have fascinated people you know ever since the 16th century so he's he he, he often you know wears his arabic speaking and sort of muslim heritage quite proudly on his sleeve as in this is one of the things that he has to offer he he offers us a dictionary for example he has uh, something on great men of the Arabs and the Hebrews. Um, that's another little treatise that he's written in Latin. And then this book, of course, one of its strengths is it kind of presents this portrait, which includes a whole lot of Islamic history. He even says in the book, we don't have it, um, and maybe he never even quite wrote it, but a little summary of Islamic history. So he's really committed on the one hand to that. That's the thing he's bringing and he's uh, uh, um, translating. And yet at the same time, you know, we mentioned this about the name the name he gives at the end of this this cosmography when he comes to signing his his name in the in the colophon, 
is, you know, Leo Africanus. It's Giovanni Leone from Granada, he hastens to add. So he is emphasizing sort of, you know, two sides of his coin. Um, he, it, You might, I guess it's a bit of a jargon now, but you could say he's kind of a hybrid character. And one of the passages um, that sort of captures this is when he claims at the end of his introductory book, the first part of uh, of this text, you know, he's going to be like someone who can, as a, it could float between different worlds. And he gives a little tale. We don't quite know where this comes from, but it's one that lots of scholars who work on him have talked about, about, you know, someone who manages to be a fish when they dive into the water and to the kingdom of the fishes, but a bird when they need to be in the air and speak to the birds. And that kind of captures a little bit how he is actually a bit coy. He wants he wants to keep us guessing in a way, partly because I think it makes for great storytelling. And is the cosmography as a genre that you talk about being being a sort of standard genre in Renaissance? Is that a genre that that's universal, or is it very specifically a kind of Italian or a Western Renaissance genre? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's an attempt to bring into the West into Europe uh, a genre which is understood in in North African Islam which is the genre of the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, the Kitab al-Masalik al-Mamalik. And the Book of Roads and Kingdoms is a genre which is not a travel narrative, not a reeler, which is, you know, like Ibn Battuta writes his account of going all over Africa and and elsewhere. That's a a kind of travel story. But the Book of Roads and Kingdoms is an attempt to sort of map out the spatial relationships between different places. So it's very a very common feature of this is a, a, a relentless attention to the distances between places, which he always gives us. But but what he really gives us as well as this is a kind of um, a kind of encyclopedia, not just of places and, and distances and mountains and topography, as we would call it, but a sense of the people, a sense of the culture, a sense of animals, of rivers, of plants, um, of history as well. It's a very, very important part of the book is is its evocations of history. And history not as a a kind of A, B, C, D, E chronology, but as history tied to particular places, a history which shapes the way in which places are now. For example, a war which has ruined a city or a particular power concentration in a mountain, which is the result of heroic deeds done two or three hundred years ago. So it's not a static picture of a place. It's It's a very dynamic picture of events and peoples and cultures coming and going, shaping the way things are as they are now. And that is uh, a thing which I don't think there's a real, really strong parallel in European culture at the time. And there's obviously kind of geographies and and histories, but there aren't these things which combine the two in such a rich way. And also there aren't, uh, to my knowledge, uh, Western books at the time, which bring in the autobiography of the author into that, into that geographical and that historical picture. So it's a kind of a, a very multi-dimensional book, which is part of its appeal for so many people at the time and now. And it's that idea of it because he does bring himself in, and there's all these wonderful kind of you know your author you know narrowly escaped death in the Atlas Mountains when the snow suddenly arrived, and you know I, you have him going off and having feasts with various you know, kind of rulers and local emirs and so forth. Is that, in this context and for this audience, is that a way of asserting authority and bona fides? Or, you know, was this a period in which the first person was less important than saying, you know, as we know from sort of Chaucer and so forth, you know, mine orctor, saying I've read it in a book and I've got it from someone else, was, you know, an important gesture of authority. Where, where does he sit in this? He's often complaining, isn't he? You know, I haven't had access to my books or my history books or my texts for 10 years. You know, I've been stuck in this dump. So I'm having to do it from memory. What? How does all that pan out? There's, there's a whole lot to say about that memory bit, because in a way he's, like you're saying, by telling this through his own experience, he's really performing a bit of memory. Um, I think that's a phrase Anthony's used from time to time, and it, it, it really captures the sense of a you're, something's on display here too. But you, you're, you're asking about, you know, is this distinctive of a particular tradition or a particular moment? And I think, I mean, this is another example of the hybridity thing. It, it matters to Renaissance humanists in a particular way who are reimagining how to describe nature, how to describe places, and using kind of authorial presence. But, you know, the claim, I saw, I was there, I observed this autopsy, you might say. That 
that really starts to matter. I mean, and you can think of it in kind of European uh, travel narratives of the period. Piccolomini, who was Pope uh, a couple generations earlier, has a famous sort of account that's sort of first person, but also brings in local narrative as he moves through Europe. But then, of course, Anthony was mentioning Albacri, this kind of this roads and, and places sort of narrative, uh, roads and kingdoms. Um, there's also, uh, you know, uh, the Rila, um, sort of a, the first person itinerary that we often associate with Ibn Battuta. And there again, what you have is the first person. Now, he's not He's not doing that genre full stop, but it seems likely if we, he doesn't tell us directly, but it seems likely that he's also being influenced by that tradition. So there's a kind of a, there's a mix of things that make this moment particularly powerful for that first person narrative, I think. Um, and it results in all these, like you say, these gems of little little tales and lots of observations that are, are very distinctive. And I just want to say before we move on, that, you know, all these things are relevant to that question you asked a few minutes ago about the, the point of view, uh, whether it's Western or or, or African or you know, Muslim or Christian. Because this really is the kind of the most important aspect of the book, in my view, um, in our view, for the way it's received in Europe and for the way that we understand it and read it today. Because what's so striking about it, and I, and I cannot think, I've been thinking about this for some time, I can't think of a parallel in its era, in its time. What's so striking about it is that he uses the language and the metaphors and the images and the cultural references, not exclusively, but a large part of it, that his Italian Christian readers would have been familiar with. He refers to Orlando Furioso, the great literary hit of the time. He uses Christian words like, well, more non, non-Muslim words like temple and pontiff to describe a mosque and a caliph. You know, that's just two of many examples. He anticipates the moral judgments that his readers might have about superstitious Muslims or about the wretchedness of, of life in Africa. Not always, but sometimes. So what he's really trying to do, not as I say, not universally, but a striking amount, is reach out. Reach out to his readers to anticipate and to engage with their expectations and sometimes to upend them, actually. Not always to flatter them, but always to think about what they, how they might conceptualise the things that he's describing when they have so little information about them or so little knowledge of them themselves. So it's really a beautiful attempt at kind of intercultural communication, which is not just the fact that he's writing about Africa for European audience in the first place, though of course that is hugely important, but the fact that he's at every level, every kind of you know, magnification of this narrative and this story and this narrative He's trying to give a sense of what it's like for people who haven't been there and can't necessarily imagine it for themselves. So that I just think this is very, very essential hybridity in the book, not just in him being bird and fish, but in his book being both European and African, being both Christian and Muslim. Well, that, that sense of, you know, reaching his audience, I wonder on almost a more basic level, is this a book that's intended to be, as we might call it, news you can use is it you know because he's very detailed about you know roundabout fez here's where they grow the grapes here's where they grow the dates this place is rich this place is poor these people are fighty these people are friendly i mean is it something that's if you like intended to entertain an audience or bring if you like academic knowledge or is it something that's supposed to be saying you know if you go here for trade or conquest this is what you'll find and this is how you navigate I mean, is it, you know, because it's a bit Lonely Planet and it's a bit Pliny the Younger or Herodotus <laughs> and it's, a, you know, there's a whole lot of yeah. stuff going on. I'm wondering how useful it's supposed to be. That's a fascinating question. And I, it's it, it's got to be all of the above in a way, right? I think we probably agree on this, Anthony. You should tell me if not. But the fact that he has this diplomat sort of training, he sees himself as, um, you know, uh, on the one hand, learned in law, but also a, a good advisor to kings and to emirs and to, um, you know, political figures around the Mediterranean, which means he has an eye for exactly the kind of detail that you pointed out. So I love those moments. He's And there's, a, there's more than one of them um, where he kind of points to a city, talks about how prosperous it, it is, points out that they don't currently have, you know, an overlord, a king whom they're paying tribute to and says, well, you know, they could offer this much tribute per year if, if you press them, which is a kind of a, you know, a wink almost, if you like, to to the willing conqueror. Um, so there's a bit of that. And, you know, that spills over perhaps into how he's thinking about 
I mean, one thing that I'm uh, a lot of, there's a ton of smaller chapters where he covers, you know, Xars, these sort of walled villages between bigger metropolises and small regions where there are wonderful fields or there are old ruins, or as you say, um, you can grow that you, you can find good dates here, that sort of thing. And it seems like he's also kind of trying to, he's expanding on it. It's probably the wrong word, but an economic map, if you like, um, an, a map of resources, which allows, you know, the good dip diplomat for sure to be able to demonstrate that they know the region properly. And similarly, though, he's also, you know, he's he's got an eye to where people are hospitable, where they serve, a, they let they lay on a good feast for a visitor. They know how to have a conversation that's really nice after dinner, and and he speaks about this in the Blackland, for example, in a way that's kind of is supposed to both, I think, draw you in, defend some things that you know, some views people might have about Africa, but it also kind of captures the the curious eye. So it does all of those, I think. We, we know we know that there was papal interest in a new crusade, for yeah. example. So it has been suggested more than once that this was written for a kind of very um, more than once that it's been written for a very particular um, political end it's never very it's never explicit though to be honest it's never explicit in the text that this is um why he's writing and i you know i think that maybe although there is some truth to that it's a little reductive as well because there's just the pleasure of writing you know there's the pleasure of bringing one's world to someone else and you get that all the way through this it's not just a functional account of where things are and what's useful to you there is that but it was also just there's so much pleasure and entertainment in it as well. Yes, do, do you get a sense of his character coming through it? I mean, I think you say in the, in, in the introduction, you know, he's a bit lecherous, you know. Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, you get the sense of him having an eye for the women, as you say, but you also just get a sense of, he, you know, he's, he, he's quite boastful in some ways. He, he wants to let you know that he's learned and, and can help villagers out who, don't, who are illiterate, for example. But he's also, there's a, there's a wonderful moment, I don't think I mentioned in the introduction, where he admits to putting his foot in it in a conversation. He's having a conversation with some uh, regional uh, ruler and he asks why there are so many oats in the field. He, he thinks there must be lots of horses. And the ruler says, no, we don't have any horses. And Leo asks, well, why are there so many oats there? And the, and the ruler says, well, we feed them to the people. And Leo realizes that he's made a terrible gaffe, that he's, that he's embarrassed the ruler and embarrassed himself and just, you know, red faces all around. But he tells the reader this, which is interesting. He's not single-mindedly boasting about himself or, you know, extolling his erudition and cleverness. He's, he also is, is quite human and tells, tells you when he makes a mistake. Yes, that's Dr. Johnson joke 300 years early as well, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, the organisation of the book, I mean... You, you, it's geographical, isn't it? He thought there were sort of four bits of Africa. I mean, it's an amazing amount of detail in it. How accurate was he? I mean, obviously, you know, leaving aside that he was doing a lot from memory, you know, which bits did he know well? Where, where is the sense that actually this stuff's reported and where's the sort of here be tigers material? Some of that's really, really hard to pin, pin down because he names lots of small places that have had different names at different points. And it's a little bit hard to trace back, you know, right to the definitive location of some of these names in other places we can we can do that i think and often his figures are just kind of you know slightly off sometimes almost embarrassingly so but usually not by massive amounts and i, I you have to think of this i mean one of the things that he's got an eye for is conversions actually so when he talks about money is it in italian currency or is it in some other form of currency and he kind of starts to, it gives you moments of comparison and he does the same thing for kind of distances but I, I don't know this, but I wonder if if sort of what he's got in his mind are distances that you can kind of traverse in a day, traverse in a, a few days or something like that. So it's accurate at that kind of level where you say, well, that's a long trip between these two cities. And this is a very short trip. So so the miles might not be precisely correct. He might give 80 for something that's 120 or something like that. But there's a, and, and maybe it's maybe it's his memory that's allowing him to confuse things from time to time. Or maybe, or maybe he's thinking about it in a different way than we might if we were thinking about that kind of mapping for, form of cosmography that he's not really doing here. I don't know, Anthony, what are your in instincts on this? Well, my sense is he doesn't really ever... He rarely tells us when he's only guessing something. And there's a lot of speculation about how much he knew sub-Saharan Africa, for example. There's a lot of um, argument about that. So, so you, occasionally he'll say things like, I've only heard about this. And actually, in, in that section... 
uh, on on Sub-Saharan Africa, he does say, "I've been to these ones, and these ones I've only heard uh, accounts from merchants." But what's what's also interesting is that he has a sort of recognizable, well, what we might think of as a Renaissance interest in corroborating things he's only heard. So there's a bit uh, in the animal section where he talks about a particular bird that has a sort of rather strange um, behavior with crocodiles. And he says, I've heard about this bird and I would dearly love to get my hands on one so that I could sort of confirm this fantastical story, but I haven't yet managed to. So there's moments in it where what he's not seen what he's not corroborated he actually emphasizes and, and kind of gives us this naturalist's view that he would like to get his hands yeah, that, that's the one that's the bird where he thinks there's a spike on its head because um yeah. these birds go into the uh, crocodile's mouths to clean out between their teeth and i think he's seen that bit yeah um, it's a real bird but but the reason why <laughs> yeah. according to the story they the 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 crocodiles don't the crocodiles can't eat them is because they have the spike on their head which sort of protects them should the should the mouth <laughs> so he's like I, I haven't seen this spike I haven't examined it precisely it's kind of a lovely he's got a lovely story about his own encounter with a crocodile hasn't he because he's I, mean, I think the naturalist the stuff on the animals is the fauna is kind of quite bang on a lot of it isn't it well some is some isn't I mean I, I always am struck by the the fact that in the chapter on the giraffe he doesn't mention the le- the neck um, yes, and he thinks a hippopotamus <laughs> is the same shape as an actual horse. Yeah, yeah this is a mis- mysterious one, thing. Well, you know, hippopotamus means river horse in Greek. Um, it's always been a bit of a mystery to me why anyone would compare it to the horse, because it looks more like a cow or something, but there it is. And he, he... But the crocodile thing, I, you, you should tell that story, because it's, it's got a lovely sort of flavour of personal, you know, of him in it, isn't there? This is where the man falls into the water. I think so. I think he's on a boat, isn't he? And somebody says, oh, come and get, help me get this bit of wood out of the water. He's on a boat going down the Nile and he's the only person awake, except for this other chap. Um, Leo is reading his books, of course, on the Nile. Um, and the man sees some wood in the, in the river and, and asks him to help him get it out. But it's not a piece of wood at all. And as the man reaches up for it, the, it turns out to be a crocodile which jumps out and grabs him and pulls him into the river and they spend some time trying to find the man, but they, they fail completely. So there is a little moment where I think Leo says something like, but for the grace of God, that could have been me as well. So yeah, he said, I'm glad fight. I didn't further investigate that bit of wood. <laughs> exactly, yeah. He's, he's got a lot of these kinds of um, not quite shaggy dog tales, but um, ones where you're supposed to kind of come along for the ride and you're supposed to kind of endure the tension and the suspense all the way through. And I'm, the one I'm thinking of is the one that was at 100 Wells, where he relates a tale that he hasn't experienced as a friend that's telling him about this, the, this set of underground caves that are rumored to have treasure in them. But they also have, a, you know, it's kind of a maze. And he tells about a whole bunch of people who go in, get lost for um, first, in the first case, a few hours. And he kind of plays up the horror of being lost in a cave and your light is blown out because of the wind whistling through. And then one person gets stuck particularly long. So several people go back to find the first people. Another person gets stuck particularly long and they think he's lost forever. Um, but after about three days, he sort of hears some barking hyena pups. Um, and, he's, and he moves towards them. And thankfully, the mother of the hyena is not there. Um, and these hyena pups are near the, the mouth of the cave. So he's figured out that this is a way out. And so he sort of very gently, carefully, while the mother is gone, sneaks over the pups and is on his way out. And, and kind of the point of the story for him isn't just, you know, uh, you know, there's not a particular moral um, other than that, you know, this is a foolish thing to have done. It's that you're along for the ride. You can sense the kind of suspense of having to get around the hyenas in order to be able to get a sale. <laughs> but actually, in that story, you have the kind of prototype of an archaeological moment because yeah. they discover that this this cave system was actually a, a, an elaborate means for conveying water up a mountain built by some previous ruler. And it has all these little details at the end, like he, you know, he, he meets this person and says, so I swore, I swore to myself that if I got out of the cave alive, I would never go underground again. And Leo says, well, have you? And he says, well, I, I did, to be honest, go, go caving again. But to be honest, I was going to break that promise anyway, because I'll go underground when I die. So it's got a kind of humour at the end of it, which is there's always this little 
bit where there's Leo coming in and having his own personal judgment, and this is the thing about about you know his character being so important, is that his his witnessing not of the event but his meeting of the person who had the event then becomes the excuse for another bit of humour as well. So it's got this flavour all the way through, I think. No, it, it's it's kind of anachronistic to bring in the idea of Orientalism, Edward Said's idea, but I'm, I'm kind of. Curious as to how much this is a contribution to, if you like, the orientalization of Africa for a Western audience, and how much it's it's the opposite in the sense that it's it's opening up what presumably, I mean, you'll be able to give me a better sense of it. You know, would have been pretty much terra incognita for Western Europeans. That's a fascinating, a fascinating question. One thing that, of course, one way into that is just the pe- the company he's keeping in Rome are people who are really curious about Arabic, who are curious about. Um, some of them have contact with local Hebrew speakers. And so there's a kind of a, 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 you know, he's helping to contribute to interest in, but also the linguistic study of of a, place, a number of different places outside Europe, but especially those places that later become associated with Orientalism. The, there is a kind of a, you know, there's a lot of the exotic in here, right? And one way to read this, and I think actually the translation from 1600 into English has been often taken up by literary scholars in this, with this eye to how these sort of exotic descriptions feed into a kind of the eye of the European on, um, on Africa. And I, I think that's, you know, there's a certain amount of that, to be fair. Um, there's, it's, I, I think that's a legitimate reading, but there's also more to be said. And that comes back to this question of hybridity that Anthony mentioned earlier as well, where he, he seems very self-conscious about the ways in which actually the European, so, so the, all, all the worlds around the Mediterranean fit together and overlap. And in Paul, there's, there's, you know, uh, white slaves being brought across the Mediterranean to feed markets in Africa and the other way around. And he's, he's intentionally sort of noting those sorts of moments. He's also, he's also really, really uh, evocative around textiles and other sorts of objects of trade that feed markets quite far inland at different moments. And so he talks about how European fabrics are worn by certain sorts of peoples in, in inland communities, um, while maybe the poorer people have to do with local wools, uh, woolens and, and, and so on. Um, and in those kind of moments, I wonder if he's also tr- working to undermine a little bit some of the expectation that these are completely worlds apart, Rather, they are already connected through the kind of uh, networks of trade that is feeding local culture. And he's constantly making comparisons between things in Europe and things in Africa, things in the East and things in the West. I, I think, honestly, this is this Orientalism is a little bit too crude a binary yeah. to really understand all the kind of nuances and complexities yeah. of the way in which he is completely aware of the, the manifold inter, inter, entanglements and interrelations between these two parts of the world despite the fact that people didn't have much concrete knowledge of especially sub-Saharan Africa, but even you know, Morocco and Algeria, what is now Morocco and Algeria, he's, he's constantly aware of the similarities, constantly playing up the similarities, um, while also emphasising the excitement and exoticism of these places too. So I just, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's very hard to reduce to a, a sort of a binary, especially the fact that he's calling caliphs pontiffs and so on. He's... You know, it's just every level. This is what I meant earlier. This is the kind of microscopic and the macroscopic, yeah. the detail of the language, and also you know the the understanding of trade and all the rest of it. He's fully aware that this is not a straightforward binary. Though of course it is, you know, two parts of the world distinguished by language, distinguished by religion. That of course is true, but it's so entangled. And he himself, the fact that he's a Muslim captured by pirates and brought to the Pope, is almost a kind of personal embodiment of this entanglement. Does he think of race in the way that we, in a you know, after it was kind of constructed in the Enlightenment, think of race or are trying to learn to unthink of it? Is it anachronistic to talk about racism in the context of his, you know, um, iffy remarks about some of the people in sub-Saharan Africa? So I, I, I think there's a broad sense in which it does make sense. Al-Khamel is someone who's written about concepts of race in the Maghreb in, in this period. And so 
one way to see this is he's he's bringing together a number of different discourses around human difference, which includes, say, Muslim ones, um, Arabic language writing on human difference. That is part of the the travel literature as well as the other, as a medical literature that he presumably would have um, been thinking about. And it's also important to remember that. Um, you know, the Iberian experience in the 15th and 16th century sets in place a lot of of uh, sort of problems, um, including sort of language around the impurity of the blood that defined relationships between different sorts of uh, so, so between Jews, Arabs, and um, Christians on the Iberian Peninsula. So that's a context in which one could read him. He doesn't speak about that sort of thing. And he do, what he doesn't have is a kind of um, a way of thinking about, for example, bet- differences between black-skinned and white-skinned people that map easily onto a way of thinking about race that emerges with the slave trade in the 18th century and sort of 19th century scientization of, of race concepts. So I think it's really important to see how he is portraying human difference in a in a frame that doesn't just doesn't fit that kind of framework very very neatly um even if in some ways it's connected i mean he's part of a, a, a again a kind of north african arab culture cultural tradition exemplified in leah's case by the philosopher ibn khaldun but going way back um, before him of distinguishing the cultural types of people in different parts of africa who, of course, have different phenotypes, have different skin colours, different you know, facial features and so on. They're fully aware of that difference and they undoubtedly map those differences, those physical differences, onto cultural differences. So he's clearly the heir to some um, very deep-seated and very general racial concepts, not the ones we have now necessarily, not ones which are kind of scientific, as we would now think of them, um, but certainly ones which are quite happy in describing the people of North Africa, the light-skinned Africans in North Africa, as racially genetically superior, or not genetically, that's obviously a modern concept, but in terms of heredity, um, superior to both the peoples of sub-Saharan Africa and actually to white-skinned Europeans. This was the, the golden mean for people like Ibn Khaldun was that zone, that, temp- that zone of North Africa. Um, so he's clearly kind of re- responding to these uh, assumptions about uh, peoples, which are as much cultural and religious as they are physiognomic. Uh, sorry, go on. No, I was, was going to say, I mean, when he's talking about people and cultural differences, one of the things he does that's probably quite disconcerting to um, a modern lay reader is he'll sort of say, on the one hand, here is the, you know, here are all the absolutely great things about them. And then on the following page, he'll say, and here are all the things about them that are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is that, if you like, from a sort of Western tradition of rhetorical convention that he's saying, you know, thesis, antithesis, or, or um, you know, he's doing a di- dialytic approach that he always no, it's says. From, it's from you know, an Arabic tradition. It's an Arabic tradition. Isn't it? Arabic yeah. rhetorical tradition of praise and blame, sometimes it's called. Right. Um, he even mentions a, a poet in his book who wrote praise and blame about um, parts of Africa. So he, uh, this is a, this is for good reason the most contentious passage of the book. You're referring to kind of two chapters, especially at the end of um, book one, where he talks about the good things and the bad things about the people of Africa, and it's very easy to sort of quote the bits about the people of sub-Saharan Africa and they're brutish and they're ignorant and you know they eat like savages and all all the rest of it, um, which sound terrible, but are are terrible of course. But what's important to remember when when excerpting those bits is that he also talks about the lighter-skinned African Africans that he himself is part of, the you know the, the 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 Arabs or the Berbers of North Africa, and he says terrible things about them too. So it's you know it was not it's not necessarily the case that he's being insincere, but it's very hard to construct from the basis of that sequence of praises and blames a kind of coherent structure of racial prejudice that we might want to put on him now it's very hard to know exactly how to handle this rhetorical exercise or performance if you like but at the same time i don't think we can um, absolve him 
uh, or indeed anyone of his you know, uh, culture and period from having prejudicial views about people. Now, now why was it that it, it, it was the most important book for like 300 years? Was that because nobody else went to Africa? Nobody else was writing about it? Why, you know, how, how come it's so dominant? As you say, you know, he appears in Yeats. Shakespeare draws from him. You know, he's pillaged by subsequent writers. What does that tell us? Why, why did he survive so long? The 1550 version that Anthony mentioned earlier is the first. The first version it's it's slightly cleaned up and varies from the manuscript that we've uh, translated from, which is earlier. Um, but that version came as part of a you know a suite, a multi-volume suite of treatises describing lots of parts of the world, and it comes right at the head. And you know, so in a way, it has you know this this kind of prestigious place of precedence um, in describing, you know, big, big sort of efforts to describe lots of parts of the world that Europeans consume in lots of different places. So I think as a result, it's, you know, like Anthony mentioned, lots of translations of it are made and it's read everywhere just because it is the first. It's also the case, I think uh, he's interesting, right? Um, as I think we've established so far and, and he's got a great story, you know, and I think that means he sticks in people's minds in a particular way. So what happens later on when people start to um, come up with fresh descriptions, sometimes as travelers as well of Africa and write them for Europeans, um, often they do so in dialogue with him. So being first, it means he is the one to kind of um, either improve upon or, or, or to fill out the details for. So I think that's, that, that's, that's part of it. I, I don't know, Anthony, what do you, what do you think? Well, I mean, there are lots of people going to Africa after him and, yeah. and writing about it. And there are certainly, um, very important parts, uh, very important books for other parts of Africa that he doesn't discuss, like Ethiopia, for example. There's other traditions about that. But a lot of this, a lot of the material on Africa in subsequent books, I mean, not all of it, I won't pretend, but quite a lot of it, a surprising amount, perhaps, is just plagiarised from him. Now, there's books from the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries which are just plagiaries, at least in parts, of Leo. And when they're not, they're, as Richard said, engaging with him and building on him. It's not that he's the sole source but it's the, he's the kind of bedrock for all the sort of for a lot of the stuff that comes after him, especially about the parts that he discusses in such detail, of course. Someone who's written on this uh, wonderful book in French is Uma Benin Giri. It's 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 a, it's a wonderful study. Something else that also needs to be done, I think, um, still is uh, look at his influence on map making from the period. So people are starting to make maps of you know lots of different places in the 16th century. He has so many names that people have never heard of lots of little towns and some, some big towns and cities that people haven't heard of before. So they try to plot them on a map. And so there's a kind of a, there's a sense in which that's that's a big after story. We should say there weren't there weren't maps accompanying his book, were there? Um, I, or were there? There aren't directly. There there are in some of the versions that go out. So um, the Perkis uh, translate or the version that is republished in Perkis comes with the addition of a couple of maps and so on. So people will add maps to it. Um, but there's this bigger project of trying to come up with maps of Africa um, that are influenced by the fact that he just lists a lot of places. Yeah. Can I also ask the you know, you've touched on this a little, but the manuscript history of this book is interesting because, as you say, it's the bedrock of subsequent writing about Africa. But it's sort of slightly dodgy bedrock because the the versions right up until the 1930s, uh, as you explained, were, were wrong or were, were substantially distorted. Can you explain how that is and, and what happened in the 30s? OK, so... This is quite an interesting story. I hope it uh, won't, won't bore your listeners. But um, what happened in 1931 is that the manuscript turned up at auction in Rome. And to be honest, to this day, no one really knows how it got there. We know that the manuscript was in England in the early 19th century. It was bound in England. It may have been in Murano in the 18th century. We don't, there's, 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 no, there's evidence that it might have been. Um, but immediately when it was discovered, it was looked at by the foremost Italian scholar of Leo Africanus, a woman named Angela Cadazzi. And what she discovered, well, anyone could discover looking at it, to be honest, but she was particularly well primed to discover, is that the manuscript was different in every sentence from the version that had been known since 1550. Every single sentence, or almost every sentence, had been rewritten between the completion of the manuscript in 1526 and the publication in 1550. Now, who rewrote it, we don't know. May have been uh, Giovanni Battista Ramusio, who published it, the Venetian 
geographer. Um, and the reason why he rewrote it is very interesting and very important. The manuscript is written in bad Italian. It's written in bad Italian because Leo was not a native Italian speaker. He did better than I could have done in Italian, to be fair. Um, but it was not his native language. And there are grammatical mistakes. It's stylistically inelegant and so on and so on. There's a variety of spelling. There's bits of Latin in there. There's different bits of different dialect of Italian in there. It's a kind of hodgepodge. And Ramusio, for kind of obvious reasons, thought this isn't really polished enough to give my readers. So he either himself or had someone rewrite it in good classical humanist 16th century Italian. Now, this is very important because it means that we know for absolute certainty that the writer of the, whoever wrote the manuscript was Leo and therefore whatever features of the book we have must be attributable to someone who had had Leo's experiences of being a diplomat in North Africa rather than there being any other kind of intermediary. So it was an explosive discovery in 1931 that we actually had the words, not the pen probably, well he didn't personally write it. We'd assume he dictated it to a scribe or, or similar. Well the process of composition is not clear. The process of composition is not clear. There are mistakes in the manuscript that are clearly the, res the result of scribal mistakes or copying mistakes, visual mistakes. It's likely that he dictated it. That is quite likely. But we just don't have... We, because we only have the one manuscript and the one printed text, we don't quite have enough detail about to know the exact process in which it was... Can I ask what may be a stupid question? Yeah. When this manuscript turns up at auction... Yeah. Um, and perhaps you can say you know, who was selling it. If it, I mean, you say we don't know where it was, but anyway, it turns up. Yeah. How was it that we were able to ascertain immediately this is obviously the real deal? Mm -hmm. This is this is Leo's first manuscript. Because it's not in good Italian. I mean, simple as that. No Italian would have written it. <laughs> that, right? No Italian would have written this this book. And so Codazzi, who who was an early reader and scholar of it, had thought previously that Leo didn't write the cosmography. Why? Well, because he's insulting to Muslims, because his grasp of Islamic history isn't as good as we might expect, because he refers to Muslims as they and Italians as we, because he gets things wrong, because he says pontiff instead of caliph, right? All these things that are actually features of the hybridity of the work that we now see as absolutely essential to the way in which it creates entanglements and uh, c connections between the two cultures, she had, under she had interpreted before 1931 as being signs that the book was written by an Italian. That's why the manuscript is so important, because it shows that all this stuff which looks a bit fishy is real. It shows that all the stuff which looks like a rewriting is in fact the writing in the first place, right? And, the, and what's so funny about the manuscript is no one really deals with it for a long time. So it's not even published until 2014. It's not published until 2014. Just as a transcription. Just as a transcription. So so everyone's very excited in 1931. Yeah. And then what? They're like, oh, we've got a war, you know, we'll put it in a cupboard. What, I mean, what? why are the people who are interested in this hugely influential book not interested in the manuscript? And therein lies the story. Well, they yeah. are. Well, <laughs> they are, but for... Well, Kodatsi basically hoards it. She doesn't let anyone see it. She is tasked with producing the definitive edition of the manuscript, but she never does it. I think part... So has she, has she bought it herself, or is it... Or no, she hasn't bought it. ...government collection or something? No, it's in the National Library in Rome. National Library in Rome. But, she, but she's been given exclusive rights to work on it. And in fact, when the French come along in the late 30s and want to translate it, which they do, they published the translation in 1956. When they want to translate it, they want access to the manuscript. And she says no, because she wants to be the person who has the kind of first rights of publishing it, which she never does. So as it turns out, the French do actually glimpse, they see the, the, the main translator, Alexis Epolard, does see it for a little bit. And some of the manuscript does get into the 1956 French translation. But Kodatsi kind of hoards it. Um, and she doesn't die until the 70s. So it kind of lies in a vault, unworked on, unused. Why doesn't she write on it? Well, maybe because it completely confutes her entire theory about the composition of the book. Um, but it just becomes dead until the 1990s when people start working on it again. 
the major scholar on that front was a German named Dietrich Rauchenberger, who publishes a detailed study of the manuscript yeah. and translates the chapters on Africa, on sub-Saharan Africa, I should say. But as I said, it doesn't get published until 2014. So it's kind of this big gap in the 20th century. We expect this explosion to happen, this revolution, in the understanding of the book to occur. It doesn't occur. And instead, it happens, you know, in the 90s. So most extraordinary. And so when can I ask when the two of you got involved? I mean, did you did Penguin come to you and say, you know, there's this thing in language in Hessen about 1931, we need to do something about it? Or were you a bit more proactive? Did you, were you working on it yourselves and when we should do this? So I, I think um, that was one of these things that um, happened while we were in the early doldrums of the pandemic, I think. And Anthony, you, you texted me, I think. Um, <laughs> said, hey, did you know that? I mean, we're, we both work on the Renaissance anyways, right? So um, it's a name we'd known. Um, there's a really wonderful uh, book that put Leo Africanus on the map by Natalie Zimmon Davis uh, called Trickster's Travels. Um, so it's, it, 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 it's not as though people hadn't heard the name and didn't know of the, of the work. And as I mentioned earlier, um, literary scholars... There's also a famous novel. Right, right. There's the famous French novel from the 80s, Armin Malou, Leon Africanus. It's absolutely lovely. So... When Anthony texted me, uh, did you know, uh, no one has actually translated Leo Africanus since 1600. But, and the version we've got is crap. <laughs> it's it's not entirely true, right? Of course, it's, a, it's, it's lovely as a kind of an example of, uh, you know, a bodlerized, um, expurgated, and also kind of, you know, um, uh, Pori, the translator back in 1600, amped up the anti-Islam sort of elements of it and a few other kinds of... And one thing, that, one thing that should also be said is that the English translation from 1600 is based on the Latin translation. Yeah. And the Latin translation is famously wrong and bad in many ways, has lots <laughs> of howlers in it. So it's, it's got the screen of the Latin and of the Italian rewriting. It's like several removes from the original. Absolutely. And so when, when Anthony wrote that to me, um, I kind of said back, not a chance. It, that, that can't be true. And I think within a matter of minutes, we had looked at each other and said, well, it's a pandemic. We don't have much else to do. Um, <laughs> this sounds fun to do together. Um, and so we did over the course of a year, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, was it exactly a year, Anthony? To the day. To the day. To the day. Yeah. Well, you certainly did something worthwhile with your pandemic anyway. I wish I could say the same. But... Well, <laughs> it, was, it was a delight. It's just a remarkable thing that in this day and age, with increasing interest in the West and things non-Western, non-Christian, non-European and so on, that no one had translated this for 400 years so in, into English there are other translations into Spanish and, and, and Arabic and so on but no one had done this into English it seemed an extraordinary absence to us and, and I, I think this is the first also into a modern language from the manuscript yeah well readers will benefit the cosmography and geography of Africa by Leo Africanus better late than never is out in English and Penguin Classics now Anthony and Richard thank you both very much for your time thanks so much Sam thank you